Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's Farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. On one hand, farmers are welcoming the financial relief proposed by the Trump administration, $12 billion to offset losses due to the ongoing tariff battles with several foreign countries, including China. On the other hand, many farm groups, including the California Farm Bureau Federation, would rather see more certainty and equality when it comes to selling their farm products overseas. And even though you may be hearing more about the soybean and pork woes of tariff-affected farmers in the Midwest, the biggest export state affected by these tariff disputes, it's California. The Golden State exports 26% of its agricultural production by volume. In dollar terms, that's $20 billion. Oh, and there's other news, and of course, it involves water and farmers. We have those details and a lot more, including crop reports on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. As the ongoing tariff battles with China, Mexico, Canada, and the European Union continue, the White House has readied a plan, $12 billion in emergency aid to farmers caught in the president's escalating trade war. The reaction from the farm community? They welcome the short-term relief, but in the long run, they'd rather have an equitable trading market. The USDA's Gary Crawford and Ron Bain have the details. When trade disputes really began to boil over and it looked like the people that would be most hurt would be farmers, President Trump said, We'll make it up to them. And today... This announcement is a fulfillment of that promise. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue telling reporters the Department of Agriculture will be authorizing up to $12 billion in programs, which is directly in line with the estimated $11 billion impact of illegal tariffs on agriculture. It's a three-program plan, two of which look to be ramped-up versions of current programs. One has USDA buying up surplus food crops, giving them to food banks and other nutrition programs. The other one is a program aimed at developing foreign markets. But the one that will take the lion's share of the $12 billion is a new one. Purdue calls the Market Facilitation Program, which will provide payments incrementally to soybeans, sorghum, corn, wheat, cotton, dairy, and hog producers. Brad Carmen with the Farm Service Agency told reporters on that program. We have a little homework to do. He anticipates sign-ups starting sometime around Labor Day and running several months. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. The three programs announced Tuesday by USDA to assist tariff-impacted producers will provide broad help and opportunity for agriculture in general. But when asked specifically by reporters about the livestock, poultry, and dairy sectors, Chief Economist Rob Johansson noted examples, starting with the Market Facilitation Program. The program that's going to be providing payments to producers is going to target dairymen as well as hog producers. While the Food Purchase and Distribution Program is designed to purchase food commodities that are able to be distributed through our food banks and other nutrition programs, Unexpected surplus of commodities, such as some meat categories like beef, pork, as well as some dairy components as well. While development of new export markets for meat, poultry, and dairy products among farm goods is the focus of the trade promotion program to be administered by the Foreign Agricultural Service in conjunction with the private sector. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. There was quick reaction from members of the Senate and the House, including some Trump supporters. Senator Ben Sass is a Republican senator from Nebraska. He blasted the tariff aid as a way of giving farmers gold crutches and warned that the current direction of U.S. trade policy could lead to economic circumstances similar to the Smoot-Hawley tariffs that have been partly blamed for straining the economy during the Great Depression. 
In a statement, Sass said that America's farmers don't want to be paid to lose. They want to win by feeding the world. This administration's tariffs and bailouts aren't going to make America great again. They're just going to make it 1929 again. Another Trump supporter, Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, says this is becoming more and more like a Soviet type of economy here. Commissars deciding who's going to be granted waivers, commissars in the administration figuring out how they're going to sprinkle around the benefits. The Secretary of Agriculture, Sonny Perdue, tried to calm everybody down by saying this is just a short-term solution that will give President Trump time to work on a long-term trade policy. I was delighted to be able to join President Trump as he hosted members of the Congress from the House and the Senate. Uh, It followed the Rose Garden ceremony with the great EU announcement, so there was a very optimistic attitude in there. The president described his uh, strategy regarding tariffs and gave some uh, updates on that regarding uh, not only the EU and how that came about, but certainly with Mexico and uh, uh, hopefully uh, near-term expectant of a deal with Mexico. Senators and the House members were very grateful about uh, the progress that had been made and were very supportive of his continued strategy. They were also very appreciative of the package that he authorized for the temporary help for our farmers uh, until he gets these trade deals done. But all in all, it was a good, very good meeting. And uh, I think all members of the House and the Senate that were there uh, thoroughly enjoyed the interaction, appreciated and uh, were happy to be included. Oh, yeah, about that meeting with the European Union. When European Union President Jean-Claude Juncker came to the White House Wednesday to meet with President Trump. I had the intention to make a deal today, and we made a deal uh, today. Part of that deal pertains to U.S. farmers. President Trump telling reporters. The European Union is going to start almost immediately to buy a lot of soybeans. They're a tremendous market. Buy a lot of soybeans from our farmers in the Midwest primarily. Analysts say this could help move some of the soybeans and soy products that tariffs have prevented from going to China and could make the U.S. the top supplier of soybeans to the EU. The president said the EU and U.S. will start working together to remove tariffs and other barriers to trade between them. This will open markets for farmers and workers, increase investment, and lead to greater prosperity in both the United States and the European Union. It will also make trade fairer and more reciprocal. In Washington, Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. The California Farm Bureau Federation President Jamie Johansson weighed in on that announcement of tariff assistance by the USDA. In a statement, he said that because California leads the nation in agricultural exports, we have a lot at stake in assuring fair trade of farm products. He says he appreciates how the USDA has worked to assemble this package quickly at a time of market uncertainty for farmers and ranchers. But ultimately, farmers and ranchers want what we have always wanted, to trade on a fair basis with customers around the world who want to buy our products. Johansson said that the California Farm Bureau Federation continues to urge the administration, as well as California's congressional delegation, to resolve the trade disputes as quickly as possible. And the American Farm Bureau Federation weighed in. They say a long-term solution is preferable to short-term relief. A continuing trade war means many farmers will lose money and even go out of business entirely, according to the American Farm Bureau Federation. Farm Bureau leaders expressed to Congress this week the frustration farmers and ranchers are feeling over the current trade climate. Texas Farm Bureau President Russell Boehning is chairman of the AFBF Trade Advisory Committee. He told the House Ways and Means Committee that farmers and ranchers depend on free trade. We rely on trade each and every day to market the products that we work hard to grow. In fact, about 
about 25% of the U.S. farm income is derived from selling ag products internationally. We are concerned with the blowback from the administration's decision to place tariffs on our trading partners. The Baining family operates a dairy. They also raise watermelons, feed grains, wheat, cotton, and beef cattle. Baining says farmers and ranchers like him are already dealing with tough economic times, and trade issues are making things worse. Agriculture is bearing the brunt of retaliation at a time when farmers are already facing low commodity prices, some high input costs, and of course, unpredictable weather. Net farm income has dropped 52% in the last five years, making it extremely difficult for farmers and ranchers to continue operating. The addition of a trade war comes at a time that we can ill afford it. Baining acknowledged the need to address trade practices that harm the United States, including China exceeding WTO support limits for farmers by $100 billion for corn, rice, and wheat in a single year. That's more than all U.S. farm commodity and risk management programs over the life of the next farm bill. We must have ag trade in China. However, we must address this blatant abuse. If our president is successful, and we desperately want and need him to be sooner rather than later, this could be a tremendous opportunity for agricultural trade. But absent a successful outcome, farm and ranch families like ours will suffer. These decisions have the potential to greatly damage our livelihoods. Michael Clements, Washington. Lorinda Overman is a North Carolina farmer who's been involved in the Farm Bureau Women's Leadership Committee at the local, state, and national levels. As an active farmer, she says trade discussions always start with the Chicago Board of Trade. Farmers can't set their own prices, which have been below the cost of production in recent years. That's why farmers rely so heavily on trade to make up the difference. We can't say what we need to get out of that crop to get a profit. We have to go by the prices on the Chicago Board of Trade. When you talk about playing the tariff game and putting retaliatory tariffs on our products, then that drops our commodity prices. We have to somehow figure out how to grow our crop and then sell our crop without losing money. Overman says commodity prices are significantly lower now than when tariff discussions began back in May. In May, the price of soybeans was $11 a bushel, and it's down to $8.75. Cost us $10 to grow that bushel of soybeans, so we're already losing $1.25 a bushel at the current price. Corn has dropped from $4.50 a bushel to $3.65 a bushel. Uh, it cost us almost $5 to grow that bushel of corn, so we were losing money at the original price. The Overman's corn crop was hurt by a drought. Combine that with the low price of corn, and it's impossible to make a profit. Overman says she supports the Trump administration's efforts at trying to level the playing field when it comes to fair trade, but this can't go on for much longer. I want them to understand how risky agriculture is. I mean, agriculture is a game of risk and gamble, even without the trade issues. And then when you add the trade issues on top and the prices start bouncing around, then the gamble gets great greater and greater. Chad Smith, Washington. Here's this week's California crop report. Rice is progressing well in the Sacramento Valley. Rice was heading up in Tulare County. Sunflowers are beginning to defoliate and garbanzo beans continue to be harvested. Grape bunches are developing well. Grape vineyards are being irrigated. Peaches, nectarines, apricots, figs, table grapes, early pears, and plums are being harvested. Stone fruit orchards are being sprayed, irrigated, and fertilized. Summer pruning and topping of harvested stone fruit orchards is ongoing. Kiwi vines are showing good growth. Valencia oranges were harvested. Citrus packers were color sorting as citrus greening was more prevalent due to the higher temperatures. 
Almonds, walnuts, and pistachio orchards are being irrigated. Almond groves were treated with pesticides and fungicides. Mechanical and chemical weed control continues. Pistachio nuts were progressing well. Over in Monterey County, the brassicas continue to be harvested. Brussels sprouts and squash continue to progress well in San Mateo County. Cucumbers, eggplants, peppers, squash, and zucchini, they're being harvested in Tulare County. In San Joaquin County, it's sweet corn that's being harvested. Rangeland and non-irrigated pasture continue to deteriorate with the hot weather. Lower elevation range and non-irrigated pasture land was rated to be in poor to fair condition. Rangeland conditions were somewhat better at higher elevations. Lightning fires in the northern counties burned many acres of pasture land. Cattle were provided supplemental feed to compensate for the declining nutritional value of the rangeland forage. Sheep are grazing on retired cropland. Bees are still active in sunflower and melon fields. Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator, such as iTunes. The San Jose Mercury News is reporting that the Brown administration has approved spending $2.5 billion to help fund eight new large water projects across California, four new dams, and four underground storage projects. It's believed to be the largest commitment of state money to construct new dams and water storage projects in California since 1960, when voters approved a bond to build Oroville Dam and the state water project. One of those groundwater storage projects is right here in Sacramento County. It's a $280 million funding for the Sacramento Regional County Sanitation District to treat recycled wastewater and provide it to farmers in Sacramento County. The proposed projects that got the most publicity didn't get full funding. That would be the Temperance Flat Dam in the southern Sierra east of Fresno and Sites Reservoir in Calusa County. Temperance Flat, a $2.6 billion project, was awarded only $170 million dollars and the sites reservoir near Maxwell was awarded 816 million dollars its total cost estimated to be 5.2 billion dollars U.S. food exporters could find significant opportunities in two of the fastest growing food market regions of the world, Asia and Africa. As Michigan State University professor Todd Reardon describes, Maybe four or five billion people with middle class that combined is much bigger than the population of Europe and the U.S. And the food market itself is growing five to seven times faster than the U.S. and European markets. Both continents are rapidly urbanizing, especially in its food supply chain. But Reardon told the audience at this year's USDA Ag Outlook Forum that rural markets in Asia and Africa are also on the rise. Factor in growing incomes, diversified diets, and increased demand for feed for domestic livestock and poultry products, and... Implication is that there's growing demand, or could be, for U.S. exports to both Asia and to Africa, as well as foreign direct investments and joint adventures for both processed foods and for all these non-cereals, as well as for feed grains such as corn and soy. Exploding demand. Not only that, but many parts of Asia and Africa are undergoing a rapid restructuring of their food industries. This is good news. It makes it competitive, but it also makes it easier for ingress. The rise of supermarkets, the rise of large processors, the rapid expansion of fast food, e-commerce. This little differential between Asia and Africa, but they're converging, they're moving in the same direction. And also the rise of modern wholesale markets and logistics. And that in turn means potential for U.S. food exporters to take advantage of growing 
ongoing trends in these markets, such as the seasonalization of produce and product diversity as items transition from niche to commodity. Food industry in these regions are under competitive pressure to move the sourcing and marketing up the value ladder, such as sweet or fruit, for example, and move it along the product cycle. Yet Reardon notes that U.S. food exporters also face significant challenges in the emerging Asian and African markets, which now have plenty of options from a supplier standpoint. Domestic suppliers excellent, as good as U.S. suppliers in the Asian market and increasingly in the African market. International competition, etc. All this is rising and contesting these markets. U.S. no longer has an automatic advantage which means U.S. suppliers will need strategies such as customized competitiveness, brand building, and quality differentiation to increase food export opportunities in both Asia and Africa. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. A project is underway to take the wastewater from the cities of Modesto and Turlock, treat it, and then send it via a pipeline and the Delta-Mendota Canal to farmers on the west side of the San Joaquin Valley. And Thea Hansen is the general manager of the Del Puerto Water District. She explained the process to the California Farm Bureau Federation. Behind us is the newly constructed outfall facility for the North Valley Regional Recycled Water Program. North Valley Regional Recycled Water Program is a partnership between the cities of Modesto and Turlock and the Del Puerto Water District to provide tertiary treated recycled water uh, produced at the city's treatment plants to Del Puerto via a private pipeline that originates at the currently at the Modesto Wastewater Treatment Facility and soon to be connected to uh, Turlock's facilities. And the water is delivered directly to the Delta Mendota Canal for re-delivery to agriculture on the west side. One of those west side farmers getting the treated water is Daniel Bays. He says he has more secure supply of federal water now thanks to the use of that recycled water from Modesto and Turlock, courtesy of the North Valley Regional Recycled Water Program. We're standing in a processing tomato field that in a year like we had in 2015 and 2016 with 0% water allocation, we would fallow and not farm anything. Having a reliable water source that we can depend on every day uh, is essential for us to be able to make plans uh, long-term and year-to-year of uh, crops like these tomatoes that we can grow and keep our land productive, keep our employees hired and uh, earning a living wage, and uh, keep our farm going for the next year. In a story that may or may not be related, California officials and scientists have been sounding the alarm about salt levels in the valley floor that have risen so high some crops can't survive. According to the California Sun newsletter, farmers have increasingly switched to more salt-tolerant crops or simply left fields fallow. An analysis by researchers at Carnegie Mellon University found that excess soil salinity in the Central Valley was reducing crop yields by 8 million tons a year. That's about $3.7 billion in lost revenue. Compared to other commodities in USDA's World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimates for July, news about the rice balance sheets, both domestic and international, is relatively quiet. Yet World Agricultural Outlook Board Chair Seth Myers says there is some items of note from the U.S. supply and demand ledger. We got a rice stocks report on June 29th, which indicated pretty sharply higher disappearance than we had previously anticipated. So we took some of that out of exports and some of it out on ending stocks, a bump there in overall domestic use. That trimmed 
our carryout stocks a little bit in 2017-18, and that's what's been offering us some support in the short run in cash prices. So in the near term, that rice market looking a little tight, but as you look out, we got some additional area in the acreage report for the 18-19 crop, and that's going to loosen things up a little bit and take prices down. With the season-ending average price for rice lowered 30 cents to $12.10 a hundredweight at the midpoint. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. The 2018 California dried plum crop is forecast at 80,000 tons. That's down 24% from the previous 105,000 ton forecast back in 2017. The total 2018 bearing acreage is estimated at 44,000. That's unchanged from the previous year. The French prune variety accounts for virtually all dried plum acreage grown in California. The 2018 dried plum season had variable growing conditions, which negatively impacted the yields. Growers reported concerns due to variable weather and growing conditions. However, orchard conditions improved during the season, and some producers are still reporting a good fruit set. If any of you have been listening to the garden shows I host, either Get Growing here on KSTE or the KFBK Garden Show, you know that a lot of homeowners are getting concerned about who's eating my citrus. And it's not just eating the fruit, it's just eating the rinds, which is very unusual. And some of the culprits being traced back to include roof rats. Well, guess what? Roof rats are now in orchards. They're in pistachio and other nut orchards. They're burrowing and nesting in the ground, chewing on irrigation lines, causing extensive damage, and a lot more. We're talking with Rachel Long, UC Cooperative Extension Farm Advisor based in Woodland. And Rachel, why aren't these roof rats in in roofs? What are they doing in the field? How did they get there? Good. That's a good question. And uh, and so roof rats just uh, they just live everywhere. They're very opportunistic, and they when they find a food resource, they'll just go for it. So uh, this year in particular has been a, a really a, a big year. It's the year of the rat, <laughs> certainly. And uh, and and all of these rodents do have cyclical populations, and so. Some years we just do get outbreaks of voles or we get outbreaks of uh, roof rat and, and other rodents. And I think what happened is last year was such a wet winter and we had tons of weeds that were growing everywhere, producing a lot of seeds and just provided ideal food resources for that roof rat. And, uh, and as a result, these uh, the populations just rapidly uh, built up. Uh, I mean, these these roof rats, you know, each each female can have three to five litters per year and five to eight young. And and so that could be like 40 offspring per rat. And so you can just see that how quickly a couple of rats can build up to hundreds in, in a short time. Well, you've been the uh, pest detective on this one. So talk a little bit how you came to the conclusion it was roof rats, because I would <laughs> imagine that the first suspect would be uh, rodents or squirrels. Right. I know. That's what I thought, too. So when I got a call to look at a pistachio orchard, I just thought for sure it's going to be ground squirrels because that's usually what it is. And uh, went out there and uh, and just didn't see any ground squirrels. OK, so ground squirrels are diurnal, so they're active during the day and uh, just didn't see any. And when I looked at these holes in the ground, uh, they were also uh, way too small for a uh, for a ground squirrel. So ground squirrel holes will be about four inches or more in diameter. And then you usually see a squirrel somewhere around it, but there is no squirrel. And these holes were about two to three inches in diameter 
with uh, with a little bit of you know piles of nuts around it. And uh, and so I knew that it could not have been a uh, deer mice or voles because it was it was too big for that. Uh, the deer mice and voles tend to be one to two inches in diameter, and these were three, and ground squirrels are four. So I just was really scratching my head, going, "What on earth is this?" Because you know, because uh, it just was very confusing because it was just somewhere in between. And uh, so I thought about rats, um, but uh, but I just didn't know what a roof rat uh, would would be doing underground, burrowing underground. And uh, and so, uh, uh, but did uh, uh, talk to a, a colleague, and and she assured me that uh, that roof rats in the country can burrow underground and nest underground. So they they're above ground and nest ground, and of course nocturnal at night. So that's why I didn't see any. For people who grew up on Bugs Bunny cartoons, they may have thought uh, rabbits uh, might have been the culprit in this situation, but actually rabbits don't dig burrows, do they? No, they don't. So that was the question is we actually put out a game camera as well because we thought, well, you know, maybe maybe we could pick something up. But all we picked up were uh, were rabbits and birds. I mean, these roof rats, rats are just sneaky. They're really smart and they, they hide. And uh, basically, if you don't see anything but you see the damage then suspect uh, rats but rabbits like you know jackrabbits and cottontails you know they don't they don't dig and burrow uh, underground i mean they'll they'll they may just uh sort of like create a little nest like in thatch and such but they're not digging and burrowing underground and then you have the case of citrus trees and i understand in some situations the roof rats are nesting in the citrus trees which must be quite a surprise to anybody out there picking fruit <laughs> would that be awful to reach in and have a rat jump out at you um, so yeah so actually uh, so roof rats they, they they're opportunistic and uh, and if you have cover year round you know like a an orange tree then that can form just this perfect protection for the uh, roof rats during the wintertime. Unlike something like a pistachio orchard or, or, or almonds where you, the leaves drop in the wintertime and so they don't have any cover. And that's probably why then they'll go underground and burrow and nest underground. But in citrus trees, they, they will nest in, in the uh, tree itself. And, uh, and, and what we also see is that uh, not only do they, you know, feed on the fruit, and and typically you'll just find like sometimes the in, the hole and then the entire inside of the fruit is eaten out, and you're just left with a shell. And same with uh, with pomegranates. There's been damage by rats and pomegranates. But the worry worrisome thing about rats in the uh, in like orange trees is what what they're doing is they're actually stripping the bark off of limbs of trees. And so, so there's you know a sweetness to that. Um, basically, the bark uh, has the the sugar conducting part of the uh, of the tree, and so uh, so the rats are feeding on that. But when they strip it, they're they're girdling the tree, and uh, and and so you can still have you know water conducting up and down. But but when you take off the bark, that that ta- it just basically girdles the tree, and so uh, a lot of the uh, uh, the trees that rats are nesting and feeding in then have branches that are that are dying back and and that's a problem because then you lose production for years have you seen any evidence in a mixed planting situation of the roof rats basically following the crops when they're done with citrus they'll move to the next Mm -hmm. crop that's ripening uh, Mm -hmm. be it a nut crop or another fruit crop certainly they can move around in in fields and we've seen that I, I see that more in something like a, an alfalfa field where 
if you disc the field, then the uh, the rodents will just, of course, they're going to move out. So you're going to have gophers and voles that are just, you know, just like um, dispersing everywhere. And uh, and and I think that uh, that you have two things that you probably have certainly some uh, natural mortality when the food resource declines, then uh, then the rat population will will go down. But I definitely think that they're gonna they're moving too. I have a colleague that told me he caught like something like in in uh, woodland that he caught something like I don't know like 50 rats <laughs> so far in the last six months in his uh, in his backyard, and I'm like, Lordy, that's a lot. And uh, so I think they do disperse, and, uh, and, and once the uh, food is gone, then they'll move somewhere else. The University of California Ag and Natural Resources Department uh, put out a publication about four years ago called mm-hmm. Managing Roof Rats and Deer Mice in Nut and mm-hmm. Fruit Orchards. What, right. what is the difference between a roof rat and a deer mouse? So the roof rat is big and uh, much bigger than a, uh, than, than a mouse, and uh, um, but they uh, they both can do damage in orchards. So again, the roof rat, the hole will be about three inches, whereas the deer mouse, a much smaller, you know, like a house mouse, and uh, and the holes will be one to two inches in the ground. And but they both actually can cause damage. The roof rats really do move up and down trees and uh, and are feeding, you know, on the tree and on the fruit. And uh, and then in the ground, they're just burrowing underground, not necessarily uh, causing any damage underground. But the uh, the ha- the uh, deer mice, they're everywhere too, and they can actually scramble up and down trees, and and also feed on uh, like nuts, on almonds, both in the trees and also on the ground. So that kind of surprised me that uh, you know that that actually deer mice can go up and down trees, and I'm always surprised by the number of you know wildlife that does you know move around and go and go you know up and down on on trees as well. Like sometimes I see lizards in trees, and I'm like, what are you doing up there? So yeah, so wildlife actually the the, the mice and rodents and rats um, can uh, can move around and and certainly cause damage to uh, to to tree crops. And it's rather expensive. I know there was a study done, I think, back in the year 2000 about the cost per acre that deer mice can do, and they pegged it at over $20 per mm-hmm. acre to almond orchards in mm-hmm. Fresno County due to deer mice damage. Right. So they can certainly be damaging. You know, the, the really the critical issue here is that uh, is then that what I really wanted to, to let people know about is is how to identify uh, these these different rodents out in, in our crops so that we can get a jump on them um, early and, and control them early before outbreaks occur. So that was my uh, my intent on uh, putting out a, a news alert on these on the rats was just to say, hey, this is what the damage looks like. Uh, recognize it early. Um, if you can, just trap you know use snap traps to uh, to catch those uh, those rodents and keep keep them out. Keep those populations low. Because once you get a massive infestation in there, then you can really get a lot of damage, and then control becomes incredibly challenging. So, so this is just a uh, you know really a heads up that rodents are out there, and and just keep an eye on them and know how to look for their for the signs of their activity, and then control them early on to uh, to prevent damage. And and I always suggest also, you know, like uh, barn owl boxes are good to put up for, for helping to control go- uh, gophers and barn owls will also feed on rats. So they can they can take a lot of rodents and, and help us out uh, naturally. So, so that's one suggestion is to put up a barn owl box and, 
and use your uh, use your snap traps and just monitor and know what's out there. Besides barn owl boxes, what other controls can farmers and orchardists use to control roof rats? We're talking control measures with Rachel Long, UC Cooperative Extension Farm Advisor based in Woodland. Another good reason for proper identification, roof rat versus deer mouse, is that they are both susceptible to different rodenticides. You need to use the proper rodenticide for each species. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So, and and proper placement too. And you know, I'd never like to recommend rodenticides, and it's really that last resort. And you know, when you have like you know a population that you just can't control, and you're getting significant damage to your orchard, like they're stripping bark off your off your uh, uh, citrus trees. So the whole idea is really recognize that damage, get in there early, so that you don't have to d- depend on any rodenticides because those you know they're very toxic, they're highly restrictive. You can only use them at certain times of the year. Um, but for something like uh, like roof rats, you you can't uh, you can't bait on the ground. That doesn't work. You've got to use some uh, bait station in the trees. And uh, and actually, the bait stations, you know, are if you need to bait, that's the way to go because they're they're off you know up, up in the trees and and essentially not accessible to by uh, by a lot of our our wildlife. So, but that's only a last resort. And really, my whole interest is making sure people recognize the uh, the damage and uh, the signs of their activity and get in early for control with other other methods if possible. Well, let's talk about some less toxic uh, methods for mm-hmm. controlling mm-hmm. roof rats and deer mice. Mm-hmm. How effective is flooding, if at all? Oh, well, um, for uh, for certainly for gophers and for ground squirrels, uh, like an alfalfa, I mean, it definitely helps to uh, to suppress the rodents. And, and I just love when they're flooding alfalfa fields flood irrigating in the summer and then you get those flocks of birds that come in that uh, that are just feeding on insects and rodents and such as they pop out of the holes and so you can always see where the water is out in the field by the flocks of egrets and um, and ibises and all kinds of birds that are that are out there so flooding does help but now we've you know we've really shifted a lot towards uh, um, towards uh, the uh, drip irrigation and uh, the subsurface drip and uh, and so there you do you do have rodent problems because there you don't you can't flood them out and and that's uh, and that's why the uh, that you have to have to certainly get in there early and manage them and 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 certainly trapping works well. And that brings up another added cost if you're fighting a rodent problem like uh, that is that drip irrigation tubing becomes a target of thirsty rodents. Right. Oh, yeah, they do. And in particular, like uh, sometimes after harvest, like a sunflower seed crop uh, for you know for that hybrid seed that you're producing that. But after harvest and everything is so dry, you do get some cracks in the soil, and uh, and then you have seed out there, and you have you know voles and deer mice and house mice that uh, that are incredibly opportunistic, and they just race out and they're feeding on that seed and they drop into the into the holes into the cracks and uh, and feed on that on that drip line. So so and then they cause you know so uh, little uh, leaks that uh, that then have to be repaired. So. So, and that's costly, you know. Actually, uh, trying to uh, to fix all those leaks. So, so it is a challenge. And uh, and one of my colleagues is sort of looking at ways to, uh, to to you know to to put a little bit of water in the line, maybe after harvest, just to seal up those cracks and uh, and 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 keep the rodents from dropping down and feeding on and nibbling on those lines, because that 
fixing these rodent leaks and those drip lines is is expensive and time consuming. So you mentioned flooding as a possible control for certain rodent pests, mm-hmm. and you mentioned mm-hmm. snap traps for uh, roof rats mm-hmm. and deer mice. Are there any yeah. other less toxic alternatives? Well, so you do have, you know, you do have traps for uh, for gophers as well, and uh, and there's, you know, there's a lot of uh, um, work being done on uh, on gopher control in particular and uh, ground squirrel control, and they have, you know, these different units that uh, that you, you know, like carbon dioxide or something, you know, just that that goes down the hole and 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 takes care of these uh, these rodents. So so there there's um. There are uh, are options for uh, for many of our, our rodent pests, and uh, and some of these are are registered uh, for for organic control as well. So um, so there's there's um, the, I wish there were more options. Some people uh, talk about like cats and releasing cats. My my concern about cats certainly is that they eat everything. So while they may eat some rodents, they're going to eat birds and lizards and and uh, you know any any uh, like snakes or anything out there as well. So so that concerns me uh, that uh, that if people are promoting cats, you know, they they're not uh, they're not specific on the uh, on, on rodents. So so I wouldn't go that route. But but certainly um, certainly the traps and um, and uh, some people actually like you know do you can actually shoot the uh, ground squirrels. Some people do that, and some people use barriers. You know, they'll like put a fence down and bury it so that. Uh, uh, and put it like a foot above ground so they uh, so gophers and such can't uh, can't go in you know get in um, certainly for uh, for some habitat plantings or plants they'll put like you know something around the root so that uh, so it protects it more from the uh, from rodents you've got tree tubes uh, so there's there's uh, multiple ways of uh, of trying to uh, to control the uh, rodents so when it comes to roof rats though there are limited options if you want to try to avoid rodenticides Right, right, but except for because you know the the big thing is is with roof rats and rats in general is they are smart, they're very clever, they're shy of anything new, and uh, they're very wary. Um, so so the roof rats are challenging, and uh, um, so essentially you know the best thing for certainly for homeowners I would say is your is your snap traps and then and try that uh, for for low maybe a few local infestations on a farm, but uh, but if you've got an outbreak. And you're getting damaged, then you need to need to go to the bait stations uh, up in up in the trees for uh, for managing the rodents. But you know that said, you've really got to be careful and know know when you can use it, and, and uh, because it uh, it you can't use it in in season for controlling the rodents. So that's something to to really watch for. But on the farm where it's your livelihood, you're going to mm-hmm. do what you have to do. Well, you do, and uh, and because especially for trees, because you can't you can't lose a tree. I mean, if you've invested, you know, ten years into getting it up and going, you don't want to lose it. So so that's why it is critical to to just watch and just to monitor. And sometimes you can take care of the problem by by trapping. But if you have a massive outbreak, then you'd need to go to uh, the, the next step is is the is the bait stations. But but in you know in the in and before it gets to that level, you know that that it's, it is really important to think about about our, our wildlife and the uh, and the natural control that uh, that you can get out there by uh, by birds and raptors like uh, like the uh, you know, the hawks and also the uh, the barn owls and uh, and to try to uh, do the local trapping to, uh, to to keep those rats under control. But some years, like this year. It's just one of the worst outbreaks of rats that we've had in, you know, in a long time, in many, many years. 
and uh, and and so it's um, in in years like this where you do see a lot of damage, then you do need to be proactive and and protect your your trees. And if you want more information about barn owls, for example, and barn owl mm-hmm. houses, University of California has some great resources at the UCANR mm-hmm. page, and check that out. Also, managing roof rats and deer mice in nut and fruit orchards, that's available as well from UCANR. So uh, check those out online as well. Well, it's right. the year of the rat. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly is this year, and there's always the year of something. And uh, last year, it was the year of the vole. I had so many voles out here in the country. It was unbelievable. And now now we've moved on and it's the year of the rat. Well, hopefully next year won't be grasshoppers. <laughs> I hope not. Yeah, I haven't seen those and just knock on wood that, uh, that it's going to be a quiet year. All right. Rachel Long, <laughs> UC Cooperative Extension Farm Advisor based in Woodland. Thanks for a few minutes of your time. Well, you're most welcome. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at kste.com.